In the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines, in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. This is Rob, and this is your Highlands Bunker Podcast. Hello, everyone. Um, as you know, last week, um, I was privileged to be able to have a conversation on this program with, um, with Marianne Williamson, the Democratic candidate uh, for President of the United States, running on a domestic platform of sort of the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights. At the beginning of that episode, I read a passage from a book called The Ends of Freedom, Reclaiming America's Lost Promise of Economic Rights by Professor Mark Paul. Well, wouldn't you know it? Uh, joining me today is Rutgers Professor Mark Paul. Um, thanks for doing it. Oh, great to be here today. Yeah, thanks. Um, before we get into it, I did want to touch on something that I think touched your life and the life of your family. Um, we see it in the news all the time, but maybe, I don't know how many people sort of take it to heart, but you, you, you spent some time uh, as an academic in Florida, uh, and then I guess sort of um, escaped Florida, if, 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 if that's a, sort of a way to put it. Uh, can, you, can you tell me what that was like and, and what sort of uh, precipitated your, your move um, to, the, to the Garden State? Yeah, that's right. So I, I spent three years living in, uh, I'm sorry, I spent four years you know, that's right. I spent four years living in Sarasota, Florida, as a professor at New College. And indeed, New College is actually ground zero for Governor DeSantis's attack on, quote unquote, woke uh, academia, where he is banning books, banning professors from teaching students about the history of the United States, banning, you know, deep intellectual engagement in crucial topics to actually understand the world in which we live and, and so much more. Uh, so I, I spent a couple of years at new college, which was a really phenomenal place. I mean, a, a great school that did uh, a really wonderful job providing students with uh, opportunities to kind of engage in deep learning and develop their own path. I mean, the school was world renowned for sending the highest percentage of students onto PhDs out of any school in the country. You're talking about a top institution. And unfortunately, DeSantis came in and took over the board of governors with a bunch of political hacks. And uh, they fired the president and provost more or less on the spot and have just drastically changed the school. I very thankfully got out just in time and am now up at Rutgers. You know, it was kind of funny because when I when I was moving to Rutgers, I was thinking, okay, I'm moving to a, a you know a, a stable ship. And of course, a few months into my employment at Rutgers, we had one of the largest uh, higher uh, higher ed strikes in the nation, which I was very proud to be a part of and spend every day on the picket line with with my fellow comrades. Um, and we won, I think, one of the most exciting victories within higher education, winning huge wins for non-tenure track faculty, for graduate students, for adjuncts and the like, you know, really fighting for the most precarious workers within the academic institution. Um, but, you know, that was a, a very different circumstance where we had a governor who was largely on the side of labor compared to, you know, DeSantis, who was doing everything he could to really um, tear down the wonderful public institutions um, that educate, you know, Florida's future generations. Yeah, the, the passage that I read, uh, you, you mentioned being um being sort of scared into not teaching history, the passage that I read before the Marianne Williamson episode um, was the, the a few paragraphs of the history of Thomas Paine, um, and the concept of of rights being a right to well being, um, and the well being state, and the deep history uh, of of the American Revolution that would seem to indicate that these economic rights are part of being a free person and a free citizen. Um, can you talk a little bit about that history? Um, I know uh, we have a mutual friend, Harvey J.K. Um, this is maybe you know a huge piece of his life's work. Um, so we have talked about it before, but I think it's very important to reiterate that although this sounds radical, uh, and maybe it is radical, um, there is a, there's a very strong history of of seeing economic rights as civil rights, as rights that all citizens should have. 
You know, that's exactly right. I, I think that we've really narrowed our conception of the notion of freedom here in America, um, really in recent recent years. So, you know, let's let's start with the recent history first. And and when we talk about freedom, people often think of the don't tread on me flag. People think of minimal government intervention. People think of the Bill of Rights. You know, people think of what we call negative freedom, freedom from government. But what's really important is that that's only a half truth that since there was an American conversation, we've been debating in the public square, what do we mean by freedom? And indeed, in the Declaration of Independence, you know, Jefferson lays out that freedom is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that that's what everybody is entitled to. And to actually have life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, you need government, and you need government that is protecting the citizenry, and that is promoting the citizenry's well-being. And, you know, as you highlight, our, our mutual friend Harvey J.K., you know, did a really wonderful biography on Thomas Paine, perhaps the most radical of the founders, um, and also had a lovely book on Roosevelt's Four Freedoms, which, you know, I would argue is a continuation of kind of a more holistic vision of freedom that was indeed present for many of the founders, where, you know, yes, we need civil rights. Yes, we need political rights. Yes, we need social rights, but we also need economic rights. We need, you know, to, to be able to vote, to be able to realize our political rights, to be able to spend time to engage in, you know, reading about candidates' policy ideas and what they're going to do. You know, we need time, but we also need, you know, our basic needs met. We need a home. We need energy. We need food. We need healthcare and the like. And without those basic economic needs met, and the right to vote is essentially meaningless. You know, I mean, to, to provide somebody the right to vote while leaving them in dire poverty is essentially to mock their condition. And so what I try to lay out in the book, in the third chapter, is kind of this long march towards you know, a, a more robust meaning of freedom throughout American history starting with people, yes, like Thomas Paine, but also like Alexander Hamilton, who advocated for a strong developmental estate to, to really um, build up the U.S. economy. Uh, and connecting that to Lincoln, in particular, and the radical Republicans, who fought for things like the Homestead Act and the Morrill Act, which you know, uh, created public universities in the United States, um, that pro, you know, aimed to provide true economic opportunity and, and freedom for, for the citizenry. Now, you know, I, I want to be clear, a lot of those policies were founded in settler, settler colonialism as well. So it's a complicated history to be sure. But that positive side of the history was carried on, you know, as I argue by people like Roosevelt and his New Deal, where, you know, often people think the goal of the New Deal was to modestly tame capitalism. But, you know, Roosevelt went much further than that. I mean, the, his goal was, as he put it in his own words, cradle to grave security for all American people. It was making sure that they had freedom from fear, freedom from want, meaning that they, you know, had their basic economic needs met, as well as freedom of the press and freedom of religion. So, you know, I think that today when we talk about freedom, we really miss out on this history and really forget that it's played such an integral role in the very conversation that is America. Yeah, I think the, the way I have tried to understand it is on one hand, you know, because of the position Roosevelt was in, you know, there was there is an aspect to saving capitalism. <coughs> Pardon me. And and I think people sort of um, let that diminish really how radical the, the program was. But the other thing it should do is allow people to understand that we can have, we, you know, these can exist, you know, obviously there's going to be, you know, it, in some sense, someone's going to be, um, I don't want to say left out, but a capitalist perhaps might not be able to accumulate billions of dollars. But on the, and the other, so, but, but the other sense is that the, the, the economy or the, or the way that we do business won't have to actually change that much. Those two things can exist side by side, I think. And I, I think, you know, the way Roosevelt argued it and put it together would make that clear that these two things can exist side by side. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's really useful for us to pay attention to the global context when Roosevelt was able to push the New Deal forward. Um, you know, two things were occurring that are, are really crucial, um, and I think created the political space for it. So one was that, you know, there was the Soviet Union, and there was the real threat of, you know, the U.S. turning towards communism. And I think that that left flank can't be underestimated in terms of the impact that it had on both on Roosevelt and his administration. Now, you know, there was also a, a extremely powerful labor movement that pushed Roosevelt tremendously. Um, and, you know, and I think that that also needs to be to be reckoned with, particularly given you know, the lack of labor power that exists today here in the United States, although there's, uh, you know, really exciting um, developments occurring in the labor movement where we're seeing, you know, worker militancy like we haven't seen in either of our lifetimes before. Um, at the same time, you know, we're also living in the midst of the Great Depression where people recognize that you know, free market capitalism was just completely failing them. As, as Rux Tugwell, one of Roosevelt's members of his brain trust said, uh, quote, the jig is up, the cat is out of the bag. There is no invisible hand. There never was. If the depression has not taught us that, we are incapable of education. And so people realized that this notion of free markets, unregulated capitalism was a farce. It, it promised them nothing more than destitution. And it was up to the government to, you know, structure the rules of the economic game to deliver the good life for all of us. And, and I think that's really what Roosevelt set out to do. And I, I think, unfortunately, we've forgotten the more radical demands of the New Deal in many instances. And indeed, this notion of economic rights was the culmination of the New Deal for Roosevelt. It was his cherry on top. You know, in 1944, he gave a, his famed State of the Union address where he called for an, a new Bill of Rights, an economic Bill of Rights. And he called on Congress to adopt it as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, Roosevelt passed away the following year. And at that time, it was really too weak to really fight to, to win this in Congress. So it wasn't, wasn't you know, realized. But that fight was continued. Um, in particular, it was continued within the civil rights movement by people like Bayard Rustin, A. Philip Randolph, and Martin Luther King um, through things like the Freedom Budget and um, the uh, Poor People's Campaign, where the fundamental goal was to move beyond civil and political rights, but to also secure those economic rights, not just for Black Americans, but for all Americans. Yeah, you also do a good job in sort of laying out the the story of the reaction to this, um, of, of Hayek and, and Mount Pelerin, um, all the way up until, you know, the, the Chicago boys... Uh, you know, I was just thinking about uh, Eliende yesterday um, since September 11th or two days ago since September 11th is the anniversary also of the, the coup in Chile. Um, but I think that that's important because people think of the economy or markets as a natural thing, as like a science, that that's just the way things work. But it's the way things it was, it was built that way. Um, it was engineered and designed to do exactly the things that it's doing. And we could just as easily build it another way. Um, it, it's not a, it's not a, hierarchies aren't natural. Um, you know, income and, and, um, and hoarding of profits is not natural. It's just the thing that we thought we were going to do um, as a reaction to really, really the New Deal. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about that, um, how that worked and, and what the opposition was like? Yeah, so... You know, the, the New Deal, I think, marked the height of, you know, the passage of progressive policy in the United States in the 20th century. Now, we created so many, you know, hallmarks of the welfare state, which is what we call it today. Although in the book, I talk about why I prefer the notion of the well-being state to the welfare state. Um and so many of those institutions continue to benefit us here today. I mean, creation of minimum wage laws, creation of, um, you know, disability insurance, social security, you name it. So, so many foundational American policies came out of the New Deal. Um, and, 
unfortunately, what we saw was, you know, kind of a shift to the right from Democrats following Roosevelt, um, particularly with Roosevelt dropping uh, Henry Wallace from the ticket and allowing him to be replaced by uh, Truman, who was much more of a reactionary. Um, and I, I think that was kind of the start of the rightward shift for Democrats. Uh, but this was really solidified with who I would call the first neoliberal president. Most people think it's Reagan, but I, I would actually argue it was indeed Carter. Um, and it was people like Carter who started, you know, bending to the whims of the resurgence of laissez-faire economics, the kind of resurgence of free market capitalism. That was the brainchild of you know, people have become household names, people like Milton Friedman and Frederick Hayek, who were, you know, they thought fighting against kind of a creeping specter of socialism coming into the United States. You know, they associated the New Deal with socialist policies, although I think that that's not true. Um, but, you know, as, as Hayek titled his book, you know, that he thought we we're on the road to serfdom. Now, what was actually pretty interesting about Hayek is that he was actually in favor of things like socialized medicine. You know, he, Hayek was a Medicare for all fan. Um, that that conveniently gets left out of kind of more more of these discussions here today, which is I think a shame. But you know, nevertheless, um, you had this kind of conservative cadre of economists um, engage very intentional in a political project to push back against you know, the New Deal and the rise of Keynesian economics that was dominating both the profession and the political sphere at, you know, basically from Roosevelt's time through the through the 60s. And, you know, unfortunately, they were successful. Um, and I actually tell people, you know, go watch Milton Friedman's PBS series, go read Friedman and Hayek's books. These were brilliant communicators. And I think people across the political spectrum have a lot to learn from them, even if you disagree with most of their ideas. Um, and how to be an effective political communicator, how to relay complex economic ideology to a broad audience in a way that's digestible and that people can get behind. And I think that's something actually the left can and should learn more from. Um, you know, nevertheless, they were really successful at changing hearts and minds and at getting people to re-embrace you know, free market capitalism. I think you know, part of the problem here is just that you know, people have historical amnesia. They forget how we tried these things before and that they gave rise to the golden age and the great depression and screwed our society so deeply. Um, but you know, when things aren't quite going as well as folks want, they look for change. And sometimes that's a reactionary change. And, and that's really what we saw with the rise of kind of the neoliberal state. Yeah. And, and there's a flip side to that too, is that when we have been able to um, scratch out some progressive gains or even enact things in time of crisis, like things that happened in COVID, um, that um, you know really ameliorated a lot of child poverty, for example, that we just let expire because yeah, we could do that, but that was sort of an emergency thing that we did, and we let it expire. Uh, or you look at what the tax rates were um, in the Eisenhower administration on you know the marginal tax rates on over whatever it was, 400 and some thousand dollars. I guess that's around $3 million in today's money. But it was 90%. And somehow we, we everybody thinks the 50s were, not everybody, but the 50s are something that are looked at as a, as a, a you know, a, a compression and, and, the, and, the, and a large middle class, a large sort of secure middle class. And so, you know, these aren't things that we haven't done or we, or we haven't tried or that aren't thought out. They definitely are. I think in your book, you do a good job, as you said, of communicating what are sort of economic ideas in, in, a, in a very clear way. Um, before we get to those, and I, I kind of struggled with whether to ask you this before or after we talked about some of the details, but we have this idea about means testing in this country because I think people do not want somebody who doesn't deserve something to get it. Um, it's a stupid idea. Uh, I think a lot of time is spent both in state houses and in the U.S. Congress trying to figure out schemes that the, the some sliver of, 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 the, of the most neediest will get something, um, but that's it. Um, this is not that. Um, this is universal programs that everybody are due as a citizen, as a, as a human being, 
uh, and and you know that's a whole different mindset. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that before we dive into the specifics about universal programs, why they're necessary, and how you run up against this idea of not even how to pay for it, but you know, is it a waste if if you know if if we uh, wash away everyone's education loans and student debt and one or two or a hundred of those people actually could have afforded could have afforded to pay it uh, people actually have sort of like a fit uh, which is completely the wrong way to think about any of these things so I wonder if you could um, sort of comment on that you know mean testing is such a big can of worms uh, you know in general it's a, it's a can of worms that's you know really embraced by the both the the right and by the center left and, and pretty far to the center left you know you and people like Senator Warren, I think, and often embrace means testing approaches to, to public policies. So, you know, first, what is means testing? Means testing is the idea that, you know, we, that resources are scarce um, and that we should in turn devote resources to where they're going to have the biggest bang for the buck. On, on paper, that, that sounds great. You know, we don't, we only have so much money we can spend subsidizing college. Let's make sure we give those loans to the lowest income people. They're most in need, uh, you know, Intuitively, that sounds like a decent idea, uh, but evidence has shown that it just goes awry in so many different ways. So, let, you know, let me first of all talk about some of the pitfalls in means testing, and then talk about some of the positive arguments for taking a universalist approach. So, in terms of you know means testing, we use this for most of our public policy programs uh, today, whether it be you know student loan support, whether it be um, SNAP, which is you know, food stamp support. Uh, whether it be WIC uh, support for for young uh, for women and children, um, they need to show that they are sufficiently poor to receive these benefits from the government. And what that does is that creates huge bureaucratic hurdles. And in turn, what we see is that a lot of people who need benefits actually don't get them because the bureaucratic hurdles are just too high. And so it dissuades people from obtaining benefits, and it further stigmatizes people from getting those benefits. Um, you know, not only that, but it also, in general, creates poor programs. So Wilbur Ross, who is one of the chief architects, both of the New Deal and Johnson's Great Society, uh, famously quipped that programs for the poor make poor programs. And I think that has uh, shown true throughout most of it, uh, American history. Now, why is Social Security such a great program? Why is Medicare such a positive program? Because these are universal programs that apply to everybody, more or less. Um, and because of that, because you have buy-in both from, you know, the lower, middle, or upper upper classes, um, they jointly ensure that these are high-quality programs. And so when you create programs that benefit everybody, you tend to have both more politically resilient programs, because they have larger political constituencies, but you also just have higher-quality programs that have um, lower um uh, barriers to entry, and in turn, they actually benefit more people, including benefiting the people who need them the most more, even though you're spreading those dollars out amongst more people. So to, to just give a concrete example for listeners, you know, uh, one of the bedrock universal programs we have in this country, libraries. You know, when you go to the library, you don't have to show your tax return and that you're sufficiently poor to borrow a book for free. You just need to show a piece of mail that you live in town and you get to, you get to take out whatever books you want for free. And it's a beautiful program that brings tremendous benefits to the American people, in particular to America's youth who use libraries the most. Um, and, and I think that if we had you know, current politicians designing libraries, they would means test it here and means test it there. And all of a sudden, the public library system would be, a, um, you know, w would be in disarray. Um, and thankfully, that's not what we have. Now, we can see these arguments actually coming into light in the 2016 presidential campaign when uh, Hillary Clinton famously said, you know, I don't want to pay for Donald Trump's kids to go to college. I disagree with her. I think we should. And let me explain why. If people are concerned that the rich are getting these benefits, these universal benefits, right, like free college, well, I just would quip that we have a simple solution to that. It's called progressive income tax or progressive wealth taxes, that there is one place and basically one place alone that we should address inequality. 
um, or primarily addressing inequality, I should say, which is through the tax system and through having a truly progressive uh, income and wealth taxation system here in the United States, which we do not currently have. That otherwise, reducing barriers uh, to things like education through universal education or healthcare, through decommodifying healthcare um, and separating healthcare from the marketplace and promising healthcare as a right rather than a privilege, uh, we, we would actually have better human outcomes. We would have more people educated. We would have more people receiving health care. We would have more people getting their basic needs met, while at the same time actually reducing inequality. This isn't about giving the rich handouts, right, if we send Donald Trump's kids to school. This is about ensuring that everybody has access to high-quality education that is not segmented based on your class. Yeah, and this is something from an education standpoint that happens in many, many other countries, especially in Western Europe, where, you know, the the well-to-do and the middle class and the working class children all have sort of the same uh, opportunity to go to to great universities. Uh, and, you know, it's something that works. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I agree. I do want to point out, and, and I guess we'll get to it at the end, because it's also the end of your book, um, the how we're going to pay for it. The, the taxes, the progressive taxation in this formula, in this the, the way this is constructed, is to um, to assuage that 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 the pressure of income inequality and the growing inequality between the top one percent and everyone else. <clears throat> it's not necessarily a a payment mechanism because it's the other way around. But we can get deep into the weeds of MMT um, in a few minutes, I guess. Um, yeah. The- the one thing I just want to point out before we move on is that, you know, the way I think about this is kind of putting bumper rails around the market. How do we put, how do we build up a sufficient floor to make sure that nobody falls through the, not just the cracks, the massive crevasses that exist within capitalism. You know, we just see that every day with 40 million Americans in poverty here today, despite being one of the wealthiest nations that have ever existed in, in, in the you know history of the human race. But it's also about creating ceilings in markets, so making sure that we don't have more Elon Musks and Jeff Bezos that are more powerful than senators and more powerful than most prime ministers and presidents of countries around the world. So it's about squeezing the market, compressing inequality, both through providing those basic goods and services and also basically taxing the rich into oblivion, for lack of a better term. Yeah, no, that's that's it. Um, So on the economic rights... Um, you, you, you have nice categories. Um, I, I do want to mention them. It's uh, right to work, right to housing, education, health care, banking, and the environment. Um, without getting too deep into the weeds of facts and figures and, and people uh, kind of checking out, maybe, maybe you can give us a sort of a, a general overview of the concept of you know, ensuring these um, sort of uh, basic necessities for people creating that that pretty high bar where no one's really falling below that it's impossible to fall below that uh, or it's very very difficult circumstances would be ha- would have to be uh, you know it would be very f- rare that this would happen but also the the numbers sort of play out that all of these things actually benefit the the, the country the productivity of the country um, the the, I, the the growth of the country the health of the country and so there's also on the other side of the ledger not just a cost but but tons and tons of benefits as well yeah so there's there's a lot to unpack there so let's let's you know think about this notion of economic rights first so uh, the basic idea as we talked about earlier was that to to you know be able to enjoy life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, to be fully a member of the U.S. economy and society, you need to have these basic economic rights in that. And so what I essentially did was I took Roosevelt's Economic Bill of Rights and tried to update it for the 21st century. So I did indeed drop some of the rights that Roosevelt talked about, not saying they're not important, just that I didn't want to focus on them in the book due to the changes that have occurred in the economy. So for instance, Roosevelt had a right that applied to farmers. I absolutely think farmers should receive a fair fair wage. Um, But, you know, on Roosevelt's day, farmers accounted for more than a third of the workforce. And today, you know, we're talking about 1% of the workforce. So times change. Um, At the same time, we have to update them for things like the climate crisis that we're in the midst of living through here today. 
so one of the rights that I added in, as as you highlighted, was the right to a, the right to a clean environment. And when we talk about these rights, I think that it's important to highlight that it not only provides individual benefits that individuals get to live more fulfilling and dignified and meaningful lives. But as you highlighted, there's also a massive collective benefit. So, you know, things like unemployment, things like poverty are not only personally ruinous, but they're socially destructive as well. Uh, By definition, an unemployed person is not working. They want to work and we are telling them as a society, you know, no, you can't contribute to make us collectively better off. I mean, that is just a crazy idea if you think about it. Um, Joan Robinson has this great quote uh, uh, from John Maynard Keynes saying that he hated unemployment because he thought it was stupid. And I mean, I just couldn't agree more. I mean, the, the, the amount of wasted human potential we have in this country because we don't provide people, you know, children with decent nutrition and clean air, because we don't provide people with high quality access to education, because we, you know, ensure that tens of millions of Americans are unemployed or underemployed at all times. It's just incredibly destructive, not only to the social fabric of our nation, but to you know, our, our economic output, our collective capabilities to produce the good life for all of us. And so what I'm trying to do is think about how do we structure an economy that centers human well-being and that, you know, really tries to provide for all because we have the resources, we have the means. What we lack right now is the political will. And what I try to do is lay out the economic arguments to convince people that we have the resources and we have the means to do that. And then it's up to the, you know, the people in the streets and the activists to think about now, how do we garner that political will for that change? Yeah. It's interesting that you used um, unemployment as an example. Um, Just the other day, it's, it's, it's now, um, it's now viral on the internet. um, But at a, at a conference in Australia, a property summit, um, some large private property owners uh, were discussing um, you know, the business. And uh, a man called Tim Gurner uh, made a statement that, you know, we have to get uh, the workers in line. Um, unemployment should be up 40 to 50 percent so that we can pressure these workers into understanding that they serve the bosses and not the other way around. Uh, this is probably where Carl will will cut this cut this nice quote into the thing so we can all get very angry with it. You know, they they have been paid a, paid a lot to do not too much in the last few years, and we need to see that change. We need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40, 50 percent, in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people that they work for the employer, not the other way around. Um, have you seen that? And and I do want to talk about that because you you mentioned in your book too. Um, this is a common theme in the United States as well, and it's a common theme for liberal economists uh, uh, in the New York Times, uh, like, like Krugman and, and, and these folks, where you know the, the government's sort of there to, uh, to make sure that there's pressure on labor and that, the, that capital has the upper hand uh, and can extract as much value out of the labor as possible. They do this, um, I think you, you use the interest rate example in the book, um, but it's important to be able to to show why this is a, a sort of a grotesque idea that is ingrained in the psyche of so many of our of our leaders and it, and it's ingrained in the psyche of so many of our neighbors as well um, because um, they need to be reading your book really but um, can you can you talk a little bit about that yeah so you know and Karl Marx himself um, who talks about you know the unemployed as being the reserve you know, the reserve army of the unemployed, that they stand at the ready to come in and take up his, you know, take a job if a worker tells their boss, hey, you need to pay me more, or hey, you know, no, I won't work overtime every weekend, you know, despite the fact that you're not pay- paying me time and a half. Um, and, you know, capital really depends on their ability to discipline workers, to keep workers in line. And the biggest way they can discipline workers is the threat of firing. Now, if you as a worker think that you can go and get another job just as good tomorrow, then you're not going to be very scared of your boss threatening to fire you. If on the other hand, 
know, economic conditions are bad and you think you might be unemployed for six months and you're not going to be able to make your mortgage payment and you're worried about losing your house or having your car repossessed, you know, you bet you're going to give in to whatever your boss asks because you feel between a rock and a hard place. Running an economy at true full employment, meaning that we push the unemployment rate down as low as possible and try to give everybody a job who wants one a decent job, is the best way to fundamentally change the power dynamics between the bosses and the workers. Um, just yesterday, I was listening to my dear friend, Eric Blanc on uh, the dig podcast. Eric is a fellow professor at Rutgers and a phenomenal uh, labor, uh, both organizer and uh, scholar. And he was talking about through his interviews with workers, how much workers are, um, you know, saying that the current uptick in labor militancy that we're seeing is in large part due to the tight labor markets that we have today. Because they know that if they get fired for organizing their workplace, that they're going to be able to go out and get another job without too much pain, you know, felt by them. And so, you know, these tight labor markets are something that we need to strive for, yet that we have basically, you know, pushed to the sidelines both in our public conversation and in our, our you know, intentions through public policy. In fact, we, we normalize unemployment by you know, coming up with this crazy idea that 5 or 6% unemployment, which translates to millions upon millions of Americans unemployed, is quote-unquote full employment. You know, I fundamentally reject that notion. I think full employment means that everybody who wants a job should be able to get one. Yes, some people might be shifting between jobs at any given time. A tiny bit of unemployment, you know, maybe that's one and a half percent, two percent, might uh, might be, you know, kind of the right amount of unemployment. But the notion that even here today we're at three point eight percent unemployment, that we're at true full employment, or according to the you know America's Federal Reserve, that we are beyond full employment. That's what they say here today. That we need to generate more unemployment is is just nonsense to me. I think that the 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 truth there is that that's you know class war. They are trying to think about how is it that we can make workers subservient to the bosses, and I think that that's something that we need to help more people realize and in turn fighting against, fight against. Yeah, and, and by the way, Tim Gurner um, got his first property because it was given to, it was bought for him by uh, by a capitalist as boss. And he got his first loan uh, based on um, uh, some a down payment he got from his father. So, you know, these things also factor in. I think people don't understand that um, most people are given a leg up in some fashion. Um, you know, it, it's just um, where their station is in life, uh, and and it's really a class. It's it's a it's a class war situation. I think that that's exactly right. Um, one other thing I I wanted to uh, get to because I think it's important, is this supply side um, that you talk about very l later on in the book. Um, because I think that there's a sort of a myth out there that because of COVID and because of child tax credits and unemployment benefits being uh, you know, extended and, and, and rental freezes and things like that, that that was what created sort of inflation uh, because people had more money or money to go out and get stuff when, when really it was a supply situation and that corporations actually saw record profits during this time um, because this because the supply of global goods and services was just basically locked up uh, for months. Um, and, and so it's sort of flipping that script a little bit and being able to address sort of supply stuff and then also while you're giving people a, a, a much better minimum and a, and a much greater well-being from the state. So. Um, can you can you address that a little bit and talk sort of unpack that a little and kind of explain um, what you were getting at with that? Yeah. So you know, during the pandemic, we saw you know pretty much unprecedented price spikes and uh, in, in a couple key areas, and and the key areas that we saw price spikes in were energy, food, and cars. Now, in the media. This was, and from most economists, this was often blamed on, you know, we gave too much money to poor people and they juiced the economy too much. And in turn, you know, giving money to poor people resulted in inflation. In general, that's a lie. But, you know, when you actually look at the data, you see that that's, that's really not what happened. Now, it's true 
had we let a great recession 2.0 happen, that there probably would not be much inflation. But it's also true that that's because people would not have been able to put food on their table or gas in their cars to bring their kids to school or go to work or even have jobs in the first place. You know, we saw, um, you know, a incredibly high unemployment rate uh, unemployment rate reach almost 15%. And we saw it come crashing down thanks to government stimulus. Uh, so, you know, I say that because there's always trade-offs. Now, why did we have inflation in those areas? We had inflation in those areas because we had massive unprecedented supply chain disruptions. In food, I think most people aren't aware that Ukraine is the world's largest wheat producer. And, you know, what also happened at this time was Russia invaded Ukraine. And in invading Ukraine, they not only destroyed a great deal of the wheat crop, but they also effectively halted a great deal of Ukraine's ex exports of wheat to the global market. So this was a huge supply shock, um, which, which you know, pushed food prices up. Um, in terms of oil, uh, you know, we basically had the same thing where, uh, you know, Ukraine, where Russia is one of the world's largest fossil fuel producers. And because of the invasion, you know, we had a huge shock there again to global supply of fossil fuels, which massively drove up energy prices. Um, and then third, in cars, you know, this was really a story of chips. Uh, people saw what happened following the 2008 financial crisis, and they saw, wow, it took us 10 years to regain the jobs that we lost. And, you know, the American economy was slow, slow, slow for a long time. And in turn, you know, every, everybody was expecting, you know, a great recession 2.0 and you know, automakers canceled their orders and we had chip factories shutting down. And what happened was that, you know, people got caught flat footed and, you know, because they were expecting another great recession, they could not just quickly re-ramp chip production and re-ramp car production. And that led to a huge shortages of both new and used cars. So we had these various shocks that occurred, not because people could afford to put food on their table finally, but because of geopolitical conflict and because of, you know, thinking that we were going to repeat our previous mistakes and, and having a very, very prolonged recession, um, which we did not this time around. And so those were the real reasons that we saw these, you know, supply chain disruptions. Now, in the book, one thing I really try to talk about is that when we think about how are we going to get all the things we need for economic rights, both the money and the you know, teachers, the professors, the librarians, the nurses, the hospital janitors, you name it. Now, the biggest challenge, I think, and this is the challenge I pose to progressives, is to think deeply about the supply side of the economy more. That, you know, coming up with the money to pay for these things, that's the easy part. Thinking about how we're going to train enough solar installers and heat pump installers and, you know, doctors and nurses as we provide people with universal access to healthcare. That's the more challenging part that I think that we don't have as fleshed out as we could right now. Um, and that's where we need to really be focusing our attention is how do we make the supply side of, of the economy both more robust and resilient and also more in tune to the needs of the people. Yeah, I, I'm gonna, I'll push back on that just a little bit um, because the first part of that equation about paying for it I agree it it is the simpler part of it, but I don't know whether consensus is there to believe that. Um, I don't use the term MMT anymore that much, but I do explain to people the reason that our the reason that the government out, uh, you know the, the government outlays for programs, whether it be the military or food stamps, is not writing checks off of a balance that we have in the bank like you would do at home. And also, the, the, the balance is not uh, constricted by how much we can, how much we have and have. It's constricted about what the value of our economy is and our productivity and how much we can borrow off of that, um, which is incredibly immensely high. Um, so 
while I agree with you that that is the easy part, convincing people of that because it's sort of, I think it's counterintuitive for a lot of people, I do think that's still tricky. Um, not to say that also, you know, scaling up the people we would need to, you know, to build homes that are, um, you know, that are efficient, um, to, and, and which will, you know, make jobs as well, help the environment and housing, all of that stuff is, it, that's tricky business as well. But I'm not so sure people are convinced about the, the, the way that the, the financial end of it works. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that before we close? Yeah. You know, I, let me just say, I agree with you. When I said that's the easy part, what I mean is from an economic standpoint, as an right, economist, right, right. we actually have those answers. We, we have answers to those problems. Those are solved problems. They're not economic problems. Those are political problems. Right? Those problems. are messaging yes. problems. The supply side of the economy, I think that we need more resource research and work into to actually solve those challenges that we have that lay in front of us. And, and that's the distinction that I was trying to make. But I agree with you, actually convincing people and getting people to better understand how the federal budget works and how you know government spending works is a continued messaging problem that we have. And it's trying to undo decades of neoliberal ideology, convincing people um, that you know government budgets uh, need to be constrained and that smaller government budgets are better for the economy and that, you know, the smaller we make the government, the better off everybody is that those things are just factually not true. Um, so let, let me explain kind of the spending side, because I get the trillion dollar question all the time. These things sound great, but how are you going to pay for it? There's a couple things that are going to happen. First of all, people always want to know this. Are my taxes going to go up? And I'm going to be frank. Yeah. Yeah. I think they are. But I think at the end of the day, or I don't think I know, at the end of the day, because we've crunched the numbers, most people are going to have more money in their pocket despite paying higher taxes. So let me, let me unpack that. I have a good job. I'm a professor at Rutgers University. I pay $830 a month for my health insurance premium, though. If I pay under a Medicare for All $500 a month and more additional taxes, but I no longer have to pay my healthcare premium, which is essentially a private tax. I pay higher taxes, but I am financially better off and I have secure healthcare that I never need to change again. I actually added it up. I've changed healthcare 13 times now. And you know, I know viewers can't see me, but I'm only in my mid thirties. I'm not that old. Let me tell you, every time you change healthcare, it sucks. It's very bad. I'm, I'm I'm on I'm on about the same schedule and it's it's very bad. And and of course then not only is not only is having to change it, find new doctors, especially moving as you did, um, not only that, but but the what you what you pay, it, it gets more expensive and you get less every time. It's sort of like every time you go out, um, what's on offer is worse. So yeah, it, it's it's not it's not a good time. But I think Democrats, I think this is a really important point that I think Democrats constantly get hit, you know, that various programs might increase taxes on the middle class. And I think they need to flip that equation. They need to say, that's okay. These taxes are going to pay for things like free college. So you don't need to worry about going into tens of thousands of dollars of debt that you're going to pay until you're 55 um, to, to get an education. They're going to promise you that you're going to have health insurance and that you're going to have other basic needs met. So taxes going up is different than having less money and less economic security at the end of the day. And, and I think we really need to fix kind of the messaging there. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to tax the rich. You know, right now, uh, the rich do not pay their fair share in taxes. Indeed, we have a regressive tax system in the United States where the richest households actually pay uh, a smaller percentage of their income than the low and middle uh, income households here in the United States. That is wrong. Um, not only is that wrong from an economic standpoint, but it's also wrong from a moral and democratic standpoint. And indeed, substantially larger taxes on the wealthiest of Americans is not only economically efficient, okay, but it is crucial to protect and preserve our democracy. Um, because right now what you see is you see that the wealthy use their outsized financial resources to effectively capture political power. And so taxing the rich substantially more than we do today both provides the economic space to finance these 
you know, crucial economic needs, but it also reduces their political power and, and, you know, kind of better promotes democratic values that we all hold so dear. The final thing uh, that we're going to need to do to pay for these things is increase government debt. Now, for, you know, long-term permanent programs like Medicare for All, I don't think that should be debt financed. But for things like the energy transition, to transition us away from dirty fossil fuels towards a clean and renewable economy, I absolutely think that the majority of that can be debt financed precisely because those are investments, right? And those investments will pay enduring returns um, for years to come for both the economy and the American people. And indeed, those investments will increase economic growth and financial security in the United States, where we actually won't, in most instances, need to pay those investments back. Because yes, we'll be taking on some debt, but we'll also be growing our economy. And that economic growth will, in general, pay for itself. Yeah, I think from a democracy standpoint, I've argued, and and I don't know whether... You know, this is sort of like, I don't know, it can't be proven by numbers, but it, it seems like a a polity that is more secure, that has more money in its pocket, that, um, you know, has, is, 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 knows that there will be a comfortable and secure retirement, and they're not going to end up destitute, sick, whatever. Uh, I think that that's a more healthy polity for a democracy to operate in regardless. And, you know, that... You know, that's something that Harvey and I have talked about, uh, too, is the more people we can get involved and the more people that we can get healthy, secure and and, you know, living in the well-being state, uh, I think the better off um, that we'll all be. Uh, Professor Paul, Professor Paul, I can I definitely know why DeSantis ran you out because you're you're too woke. This whole conversation has proven that you're just you're, you're too woke. You know, I got to say, I am happy to be living in the state of New Jersey. Yeah, well, we're, we're happy to have you here in the Mid-Atlantic. Um, thank you for taking the time. We didn't get into a lot of the a lot of the minutia of each of the economic rights and, and how it would work and, and, and what the underlying sort of philosophy is. But that's because, dear listeners, you have to go out and get the book. Thank you. It is called The Ends of Freedom, Reclaiming America's Lost Promise of Economic Rights. The author is Professor Mark Paul Rutgers. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a pleasure. And you know what we always say, folks? Left is best. <laughs>